Welcome to the Center for Internet Security's podcast, Cybersecurity Where You Are. Cybersecurity affects us all, whether we are at home, managing a company, supporting clients, or even running a state or local government. Join CIS's Sean Atkinson and Tony Sager as they discuss trends and threats, ways to implement controls and infrastructure, explore best practices, and interview experts in the industry. We are here to bring clarity to these complex issues to bring confidence in the connected world. Hello and welcome to the show, Cybersecurity, where you are. I'm Sean Atkinson, CISO here at the Center for Internet Security, and I am joined by the host with the most, Tony Sager. Tony, how are you, sir? Good. Thank you, Sean. Great to be back on with you. Awesome. Now, we're talking with two experts in the space of elections, and we're talking about a product, Rabbit V. And so I've got to ask both Jared, Mike, if you could do introductions and then do a brief overview. One, what is the acronym RABBIT-V, but also what it is and its purpose in the election space. So, Mike, if, if we could start with you, please. Sure. Thanks, Sean. Uh, and thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Mike Garcia. I uh, have been working in the election space for about six years uh, doing cybersecurity best practices and other assorted work as it comes. Uh, prior to that, I was with the federal government for about nine years at uh, Department of Homeland Security and at NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, probably more of a cybersecurity and technologist person than I am an election person, but uh, I'm getting there on elections as well. Fantastic. Thank you. And Jared? Hi, uh, my name is Jared Deering. Uh, I am the Senior Director for Election Best Practices at CIS. Um, prior to this, I was the uh, uh, State Board of Elections Executive Director for uh, um, the Commonwealth of Kentucky. Did that for a while. Prior to that, I uh, did some policy work, uh, both at the state and uh, local levels, both in Kentucky and in California, where I was originally from. Wonderful. Thank you. So I mentioned Rabbit V, Mike. Um, can you walk us through what is Rabbit V? Yeah, so we call it RAPID-V because it stands for Rapid Architecture-Based Election Technology Verification. And so that's probably the last time we'll say that during this podcast or we're out of time. <laughs> it's a mouthful. We can only hope. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so the, the, the basic idea here is that um, election infrastructure is critical infrastructure. And uh, so it's important to know that we have uh, put uh, controls around uh, that technology to ensure that it performs the way that we hope it is and uh, hope it does and is resilient in the way that we need it to be. Uh, and so like you do with many technologies within various critical infrastructure sectors, um, you need some sort of testing. Uh, it could be internal, can be external. You need assessments, can be internal, can be external. Uh, and in some cases, you need uh, verification programs, independent programs that can conduct verification, make a statement about how a product performs. And so in the election space, if you take the whole huge swath of election technology that's out there, uh, you can slice and dice it in a lot of different ways, but there's somewhere around two dozen different categories of technology that are used. Uh, we put them into two big buckets. One is voting systems and one is non-voting systems. And so voting systems, typically the easiest way to think about it, there's a really complicated definition in, in, in federal law uh, about how you uh, define uh, voting systems. But the easiest way to think about it is if it is technology that interacts with the casting or counting of the ballot itself, then it is a voting system. 
If it does not interact with the casting or counting of the ballot itself, it is a non-voting system. So on voting systems, there's uh, for uh, there's long been a federal testing and certification program. And so that covers the what are called ballot marking devices that in many jurisdictions, the touch screens that eventually print out a ballot after you've fulfilled, after you've filled in your selections or the scanner that counts the ballot that you put it into. Those are the sorts of things that are voting systems. So there is an established testing and certification program for those. One of the hallmarks of those technologies is that they're not connected to the Internet. And so that program is really developed in a way that's very robust, uh, but is relatively slow. And so you don't typically put the same technology through more often than you have to. Uh, it, it's an expensive program that takes a lot of time to get through. And so once you've got something that passes, you typically try and keep it as stable as possible. That type of approach doesn't really work with non-voting systems because essentially all of the non-voting technology is connected to the internet. And as soon as you connect something to the internet, the threat environment changes too rapidly for you to approve something and then sit on it without making any updates to it for years. And so we needed to find a different approach to testing that allowed us to conduct that verification we need in a way that moves fast enough that we could put this critical infrastructure system through, have uh, confidence in its performance, and then when either changes the threat environment or new product features dictate some sort of change, we can get it back through rapidly and more cheaply in what is a chronically under-resourced industry in elections, uh, that is that undergoes a heavy amount of scrutiny and where there is a very real threat environment. And so in the RabbitBee program, we set out to create a brand new approach to testing that looks at three different things. The hey, organization. Mike, just, Mike, before you, you do that, I was wondering maybe just to give a little example to some of the listeners of like what a non-voting system uh, would be and why the necessity of it being connected to the internet exists. Sure. So, this is a good point to give a couple examples. Good, uh, uh, so this is a good spot to give a couple examples of uh, non-voting election technologies. So uh, one is election night reporting systems. So the thing that ends up on the news uh, or on a website, you know, the New York Times or the AP or somewhere like that, at the uh, after an election uh, uh, closes, after the polls close at the end of the night, uh, those are unofficial results. And they get fed to those media organizations through what are called election night reporting system. That's one example. So it has to be connected to the Internet. That's how you get the information over to those outlets. Uh, another one is voter registration systems. Big point of voter registration systems is that you can, as a voter, you can go and look it up and see where your polling place is. You can see if you're registered. You can maybe change your address depending on which state you live in, what the rules are around those voting, those uh, voter registration systems. And a whole host of other systems around printing ballots, mailing ballots, receiving mailed ballots back, lots and lots of different technologies that are in many time, many cases interconnected and connected to the internet. I wonder too, like Mike, if the, like, I think the easy way, the way that I always kind of think about it is you have voting systems, which are, you know, like you made a really good uh, explanation of, you know, that anything that is touching, uh, helping to scan, cast a ballot. But all of these other non-voting systems are really integral to the voting process itself. So they're not tied to voting, but they help support the ability of both elections officials and voters to have access to the ballot um, or, or be able to see what the results are at the end of that, that election cycle. 
Yeah, Jared, I think that's a, and, and you know, Mike, you really laid out the case well. For, it's, what I heard was the sort of two, I'll call it design requirements for the process, right? Around speed and cost. And any, any other drivers that were in there, you know, Jared's hinting at sort of the confidence part of that. How, how big is that in the design or in the design of the process here? Yeah, I think it's critically important, right? Mm-hmm. Because you're, you know, there, there are a couple of different things you have to think about here. And this is a, a constant problem in cybersecurity, you know, that we, uh, there's this expectation of perfection, whereas practitioners in cybersecurity are risk managers, right? Because we know that perfection is not an option. So how do we balance these things? It's always hard in critical infrastructure. And then you put it under a microscope that elections have been under for the last few years, and it becomes even more difficult. And so one of the, the fundamental aspects for us is that we can design something that is defensible from a risk perspective. Uh, it's easy enough to say, oh, well, you go through this thing the first time, and the next time we'll make it easier. Well, you have to have a justification for making it easier to go through again. You have to have a way to tie the actual performance objectively tested to uh, to that more streamlined process down the road. And so you have to look at the uh, the outcomes of previous testing, as well as the type of change that's being made, as well as anything that's changed in the threat, threat environment, and come up with something that is a rational mechanism for having more streamlined testing or saying, well, you know what, too much has changed here, and we have to go through that for the, the, you know, the, the full test over again. Uh, that's a really difficult, complex thing to do, but it's critical to get that right because that risk basis is what really provides confidence in the approach. Yeah, and I think that's a you know, more, as you said, more complex and more nuanced. You know, sort of traditional programs are they sort of hide the the risk decision, right? We're going to test the system every three years, whether it needs it or not. You know, what you're really, of course, that's a decision of risk itself. That three years makes sense, and in fact, it often doesn't. It certainly doesn't uh, in today's world. Well, any thoughts about the role of I'll call it transparency of the process and the steps that happen? Because this is all about confidence, right? At the end of the day, the confidence- that's actually a great segue for Mike to kind of go back to where he was and explaining exactly what the modules of of the assessment process are, because that's really where, from a, from an elections uh, administrator perspective, that's really where the transparency comes into play. So maybe Mike, I didn't mean to interrupt you earlier, but maybe that's a good way to segue back into it. Uh, yeah. So, so one of the ways that we really address transparency here is that we want to make a more holistic approach to testing. And so when you think about what you normally do when you have a new system is, you know, you do some compliance testing, uh, you know, does it meet these sort of implementation requirements we have within the organization? Uh, and then you have typically pen testing, right? At this point in time, is it resilient against, you know, the, the attacks that we can throw at it? And then some automated scanning and things like that also. But there are all these very point in time sorts of things that are very specific to the product itself and the product's environment. Uh, so we've expanded that. And so that first time through, I referenced kind of this sort of more complete or full testing the first time that product goes through. Uh, that has three different components to it. One is assessing the organization itself. Are you good at developing products? And do you have those things implemented in a way that is systematic within your organization and reliable and repeatable? Uh, That's one. The second one is the architecture of the product itself. Did you design it well using modern practices? What does your software bill of materials look like? What do your dependencies look like? Uh, uh, Did you write code that's well componentized and, uh, and security services are separated and used repeatedly rather than writing your own rolling your own crypto in multiple places throughout the program. 
uh, so that getting the architecture right so that it is more likely to be resilient when a change occurs. Uh, and then that point in time testing of the product itself, pen testing and saying, okay, can you, you know, perform and, and, uh, uh, and continue doing what you're supposed to be doing in the face of, uh, of attacks. And so it's by combining all three of those that we believe we can get a longer term holistic view to know that the organization has a product that functions right now, has an architecture that supports making changes to it without, un, with limited unintended consequences. Uh, and has an organization that knows how to conduct the processes that we know are best practices for uh, for developing products. Yeah, I, I think that you know the way you described again. I, you know, from from my experience, Mike, as you know, I spent a lot of time dealing with these things in the Defense Department, and but uh, you know, there there is a sort of a, a um, I'll say common sense approach that you've taken here, which I think is very appealing. Right, that is you know, it's sort of in the interest of fairness, you'd say, well, everyone's got to meet the same requirements every time over and over again. But really, that that doesn't lead you to where you'd like to be. And, and this idea of making a, a value judgment about, you know, the company, I always said, if flawed software is a way of life, then, you know, the track record of a company in dealing with that is a really, really important thing. And you want to somehow account for that as you make a decision, right, as, as we have the inevitable updates. And I think that that's, again, from my point of view and experience, very sensible. And, hey, Tony, uh, that, that's actually a really good like, kind of point to like that rabbit fee is actually not just a baseline set of requirements that say if you meet this threshold of quality, you can be rabbit fee certified and we'll list you as, as a product that's been fully assessed through the rabbit fee program. It, it goes so far beyond that. And I think that's where a lot of the benefit of the program comes from is is that it is about constant change in, in increasing your maturity level from a development practice and organizational level to increasing your security posture over time. And, and the rabbit fee assessments really dig into where organizations can increase those opportunities to do so and, and also meet that minimum base right, baseline requirement uh, that says, hey, this system is ready for, for use in, in the field. And I think you know, Mike kind of had alluded to this earlier, but, you know, as, as a former elections official, I can tell you right now that I would go in and look at um, the product of, of, uh, of a software tool that we were going to purchase for, for use in the Commonwealth. And we would do point in time testing, right? Like, what is this, what does this product do today? Is it secure today? Does it do all the things that we needed to do from a functionality perspective? And then once we did that, we could say, okay, great, we're going to go through the procurement process and purchase it. Um, but what that really doesn't give you is insight into the constantly changing landscape from a security perspective and also business rules, right? So like elections are constantly changing, how we run them, how we operate them and administrate them. Those rules are being dictated by state legislatures um, and sometimes the federal government. But the, the, the reality is, is that the, the rules we have to abide by and follow, those can change over time. And so when you're working with a software development company, you know, modern software development has this iterative um, adding, you know, if they're utilizing agile and lean practices, you know, this constant change cycle of identifying areas of growth and implementing those into the system. And so when you have a constantly changing an administrative process and the business rules of the software that we're using to, to facilitate these elections also have to change. How effective is that organization going to be at making those changes? 
right? And that is the one thing that I never got as an elections official. I could see how a product worked at a point in time when we purchased it, but I didn't know how it was going to work over a longer period of time. So I know right now that there were organizations that we partnered with where the product was great, but the organization might just not have been mature enough to meet the needs of, of our systems as they changed and iterated over time. And so, you know, those failures would cost very real uh, effect into our systems. And those effects, you know, listen, you know, when you're doing just kind of software development for general purposes, you know, a little bit of failure can be good because you can identify that failure and then develop around it and make the product more streamlined, more effective, more robust, more secure. But when it's elections, if it breaks down in the middle of an election, that means voters are going to not be able to access the ballot, right? It means that the, the potential for security is going to decrease. So, you know, all these things that we need for you know, fair, free, secure elections have to be facilitated by these, by these software development companies that are building these products for us. And Rabbit V does this incredible job of, of giving us transparency into not just the product itself, and, and But the organization overall and the way that I've been kind of talking to other elections officials about this is that, you know, the organizational assessment really gives us an understanding of how this organization is going to operate over time. How well do they implement changes into the into the business rules, business side of the of the software itself? The architecture review is going to tell us how effective is that architecture going to be at a constantly changing security landscape? And then the product assessment itself gives us a very robust testing cycle of how that product works today, right? And those are kind of the three things that as an election official, I need to know if I'm going to be confident in putting this system into the field. And, you know, that, I really appreciate the characterization of that, Jared. And, and uh, again, this is not an area I've, I've worked a lot before, but what, what I really like, I guess, about the approach, right? Many of the classic you know, certification or, you know, product and system things of the past, they, they always came across to me, I'll cartoon a bit, as pass-fail tests. You, yeah, you know, you must be this right. tall to ride. And is the is the supplier base to this to this world relatively stable? You know, is it is sort of a, a relatively small number of vendors that, that are, stay in this for space for a long time? Or is it... It, it depends on what the product it is. But in general, okay. like when you look at other product, you know, other categories of products in other sectors, it is very small, right? That, and this is part of the problem that, you know, one in that um, elections are happening every year, obviously, but funding streams happen either bi-yearly or sometimes when it's the federal government, they drop in these tranches of funding that can be every five to 10 years and you never know when you're going to get it. And so the development cycle for the tools, the procurement cycles that we use for these, these uh, products can be really kind of staggered. And that's not a secure environment for from a business perspective. And so it kind of chases some of the smaller businesses out. And we have some amazing vendors in the election space that do an incredible job at securing our infrastructure and our, our non-voting systems as well as our voting systems. But there's got to be a better path forward to make sure that, you know, we ex we know exactly how these products work. Yeah. No, I think it's secure I think, them effectively over time. I, you know, again, what you're describing is, you know, again, the, the goal is not to, you know, pass this or get out of, you know, get out of my world. Right. The goal is improvement. You know, there's, clear, right. there's a clear path. The transparency yeah. supports that. The assessment of the company and their uh, ability to respond, et cetera, is all about everybody improving. You know, so so stability helps, right? The stability of the base. I had never thought about the funding oddities, right? The uh, the unpredictability of the political cycle and the 
and the funding cycles. But but again, I, I think that really speaks well to the approach, which is, you know, um, because, you know, even for the mainstream, if I look across, say, the U.S. government, right, you, you really don't well, you don't want to treat this as a pass-fail test. You actually want a really rich, for example, supplier base, and you want to minimize the cost of moving people in and out of your supplier base. So you want to have a clear path that says, you don't meet requirements now, my requirements now, but here's what you need to do, right? And and it's very clear how that is laid out. So there's a, uh, you know, an accessible path. And the goal is improvement. So I have lots of suppliers who meet my needs. So I, again, I like it. The other thing, and, and Mike, maybe you talk to this, is I, I thought what was really innovative was the architectural analysis. You know, again, that's, I, I'm not aware of that being used elsewhere, but it has a huge impact, you know, on, again, if I look at a change, right, how much do I have to worry about it? And, uh, you know, can it be isolated? Can it be managed? Is it clear what the implications of a mistake would be and so forth? Any, any thoughts on what, what was the thinking behind that and how did that, how well has that worked as a, uh, as a um, aid to help you understand, for example, the implications? Of yeah, that was, you know, architecture is the one that uh, actually made it into the long acronym uh, <laughs> because as we were kind of thinking our way through this problem a, a number of years ago, it, you know, it occurred to us that that is, you know, it, it's all about unintended consequences, right? We know software is going to get updated. We think we know what updates we made, right? We can, we have tools to, to, uh, to determine where the actual changes were made within code. What matters is knowing whether it impacts things you weren't expecting. And so that just speaks directly to, to the architecture side of it. Um, and, and then, you know, the, the, you know, we, we've known this for a long time. I think, uh, you know, events of the last few years show the importance of supply chains and supply chain analysis. And so that those third party dependencies uh, became critical, you know, have been critically important and, and understanding them has just become more important over time. And so we couldn't, we, we went out and we looked for how this had been done before. And yes, there are software composition analysis tools, and yes, there are SBOM tools, but no one had really put that analysis together in a meaningful way where you could score it and track improvement over time in, in a really robust and meaningful way. And so that was in development of the program. I don't think there was anything that we spent more time doing. Uh, that was you know an incredibly difficult task. It still has to mature, uh, as does everything that you know that that one ever does. Uh, but it, it, that proved to be the linchpin for us being able to say, okay, we think this product will be resilient to change. And we have a good body of evidence that we've found analytically, uh, you know, not just looking at diagrams, but by conducting actual code analysis uh, and, uh, and dependency analysis, uh, that we think that it will, it will live up to, uh, to, to whatever claims are made, uh, even in the face of changes. That's excellent. Because one of the other things that I see as well is the value add from a vendor perspective to go through this assessment and the program. I mean, given its uniqueness, given the three-stage process, it really just seems like this is um, an attestation, a certification in this space that would lead us in that direction. So how then does this process vary from what you've seen in terms of traditional testing methodology? Is it really this three-pronged approach adds that element of both the reliability, there's an underlying cost effectiveness to it as well, but it's also the rigor is involved. What do you think, Jared? So a couple answers to this. And I think 
the the true value really kind of in this side of it where it differentiates itself from other testing systems is the iterative process after the fact, right? So like what happens after we do the initial assessment, right? We, we, we draft an incredibly robust report that, repu- that report goes to the vendors and it literally lays out step-by-step step how they can, they can increase their maturity posture, where they can add value in other parts of the assessment. There's even a section that is like low hanging fruit where you can, where can you implement some changes like almost immediately that will provide you value. <clears throat> but that, that, that score provides us, a, a use, we, can, we can use it as a proxy to how well they can accept change into that system. And so like, how do they deal with risk over time? And so that means now, instead of, you know, similar to like Mike was laying this out with voting systems, which is when they're, you know, when they're initially certified, it takes a long, a long period of time, it takes a lot of money. And then once they're certified, any change that's non-de minimis is going to justify that testing process all over again, right? Which costs, you know, more time and more money. And so what RabbitV really does, and I, I think, you know, like this is the the genius of, you know, Aaron Wilson and, and Mike Garcia, and Mike is a trained uh, economist. And I think this is really where it comes out is how do we get to incentivize organizations to constantly change these systems, but want to do it in a way that's going to increase their secure pro- security posture over time. And that's what the iterative testing process does, right? Is we can now say, okay, what is that change going to be that you want to enter into that system? We can assess it from a risk-based perspective and say, is is this going to be a high-level risk? You know, whether it's a security configuration, um, maybe that's a higher-level risk. Maybe it's a change to the GUI. That's probably going to be a lower risk. But then we can take and see how well did that organization do in their in their rapid assessment, and say based on that. We can now scale the retesting on how effective they were in their official assessment and what the risk level of the changes that they're they're you know putting forward. And in doing so, that means for the the company itself, the better I do on Rabbit V assessment, the cheaper it's going to become for me when I need to come back for retesting. And that is really incentivizing these vendors to do better over time. And that means over time, we can also increase that baseline level of testing and say, hey, this is where we want you to be for that, that minimum level of, of RabbitV assessment uh, for, for being listed as RabbitV assessed. And we can increase that over time. And, and our vendors can see that increase coming over time. And every time it happens, it's only going to allow them to do better in the, in the overall system and decrease those costs overall. But Mike, you're the economist here. You probably have a better language around that. Yeah, I think that you know, that was kind of the first thing that we did when we set out to, to, to create the RabbitV program was we looked at incentives for traditional testing programs. And so many of these traditional testing programs are, as we've discussed before, single point in time, uh, and they take a lot of time. They have this very time-based renewal period. Uh, and so the incentive is get it done, find a way to get through, and make no changes once you've gotten it through. And so you know, that may work in traditional schemes. And that may be the best that we can do in many traditional schemes, you know, in lots of different industries. And I've been involved in a number of programs, uh, of similar programs in, in various uh, industries across cybersecurity, but it doesn't work as well as it could. And so we wanted to really flip those incentives around. We didn't want people saying, I got it through, I'm not going to make any changes. Uh, and I'm not going to try to shoehorn every change I have to make into being a de minimis change to avoid going through the whole process again. 
Let's flip it around to actually align with modern software development practices, which are small changes, frequently releases, uh, and, uh, and, and uh, being more agile. And so we wanted to create a program that incentivizes that sort of behavior, where you actually get a benefit out of making smaller changes more frequently and deploying them on a more frequent basis. You know, and I, I think a real world example of that is, you know, you know, like I was saying earlier that election systems are changing over time. Um, one of those changes uh, specifically in the Commonwealth of Kentucky were, was that uh, initially uh, polling locations were one precinct uh, and that was the only place a voter could, could cast their ballot. And so the e-poll book was tied specifically to that location and had a listing of the individuals we expected to vote at that polling location. Um, over time, we were able to increase access and, and capacity for both our clerks and voters, and we opened up uh, super centers, which allowed voters from any precinct to come in and vote at that location. So think about that change from a software development you know, perspective. You now have to go from a system that is, is pretty closed in that one location to then having a network of e-poll book devices that are ensuring that when one voter shows up at one location, they're not going to another location. If that voter's already voted through a, uh, a, a, a sorry, my, my brain just shut down for a second. If we can push out of there. Um, if a voter is, you know, showing up at one location and going to another location, those e-poll books are going to catch it. If they've already voted absentee, um, and they're now trying to show up in person, that e-poll book is going to catch it as well. But the software that facilitated that had to be built and changed after that system had been procured by the state, right? So how effective is that organization going to be at doing that? And this is where RabbitV, if I had had access to that system, I would have known exactly what that organization was going to look like, right? And we had great vendors in Kentucky that were able to, to do some really amazing things. Um, but I always want more information when I'm procuring these systems from from a, a, an official perspective. Yeah, that's a fascinating example, Jared. You know, because you know, having grown up in IT, it's, it's a, it always has surprised me or uh, caught me by surprise the uh, how, how many of our software requirements turned out to be tied to something like geography. <laughs> you, you know, and then and then the world changes, or you know, borderlines get redrawn, or <clears throat> the requirement changes. Right, you can have people vote multiple places, and you know, th those are huge. You know, potentially huge problems for your software design if you didn't build in sort of some modularity or flexibility in the way you, you thought about that. And that, you know, as you said, so I mean, I could talk for, for hours just on the topic of going from address ranges, which are basically, you know, like where's the mailbox located on the street used to dictate where your sure. polling location oh was going to be to actually adding geotags on the house, right? Now, yeah. now we have this really clear and distinct line, but that was a huge change that was you know, had to be implemented into our systems. And so how, how are our organizations that are supporting us going to affect those mm -hmm. changes? Yep, yep. And as, you know, as Mike has pointed out, right, the architecture can make or break your ability to make that change, you know, in support of that, that change in requirements. So, yeah, so cool. So uh, tell us about the vendors. I mean, what's been the reception or the feedback or, or the use? It's, you know, it's been great, actually. You know, I mean, obviously this is trial and error. We had a really... Um, uh, a broad swath of, of the piloting phase of this, where we brought in multiple vendors, multiple products lines, 
we had uh, an e in multiple e-poll books come through, a voter registration system that was home built. And I don't think that we've mentioned that yet either, which is Rabbit Fee is not just built for vendors, it's also built for states that are building out their own systems internally, right? So giving them access to a third-party assessment to understand where they're at in their build and, and how they can improve as well. So like that's a, a huge part of that. But um, the pilot phase was really great at us kind of taking some learned lessons um, the vendors understanding what the product was and that Rabbit V was a community-driven product, right? We brought in stakeholders from across the, the community, uh, including from the EAC, uh, um, usability and accessibility experts, uh, elections officials, both at the state and local level. Um, and we were able to take all that feedback and kind of hone this program so that as we become operational this month in September, um, you know, we now have vendors that are really interested in coming through. And I think, um, you know, we were just on the phone with one vendor, I won't say who, but one of the vendors, they were saying that the thing that they are so encouraged by is that this just isn't a certification of their system that is pass fail, right? It is a, a, a system and a framework that says, hey, we're good enough to be in the field today because we've passed that, that baseline of requirements, but it also gives us so much feedback that we can then turn around and start to, to, to tailor our development processes to increase our security, our ability to change over time and adapt to risk. And, you know, from his perspective, this was a, a real large leap forward in the certification process of these systems. That's awesome. So we mentioned the release uh, this month. Um, where do we see it going next? So we've gone through pilot phases great feedback moving forward with this capability. What do you see being the next stage, the evolution of the uh, underlying program? What are you looking for? Honestly, given given the current landscape of, of kind of politics and elections today, you know, what I'm really hoping for from a personal level is one, giving our, our administrator community access to be able to understand how these systems work in a more transparent way giving vendors that like honestly are trying to do as best they can with the resources that they have, giving them a clear roadmap of how to do better. Right. But then all those things together, I think can add value to the larger space of, of voters feeling confident that the, the, the state officials that are operating their elections are doing so in a, in a faithful and ethical and appropriate way that is manifesting really good outcomes that provide access and security to our election systems. And I think there's this reputational value that RabbitV will, will create over time that says, you know, like, hey, it is a transparent process and that in doing so, we're, we're getting better year after year. We can always do better, right? And I think that's the, the real value for me. But like, uh, I, I didn't create this. And, and, you know, like I said earlier, Aaron Wilson and Mike Garcia, you know, did an incredible job of putting this thing together. So I'll, I'll let Mike kind of give you his vision of, of where he sees this going in the future as well. Yeah. So, you know, it, CIS is a nonprofit. So, you know, our goal here in running this program is to provide to the community, to the election community. Um, but it is, you know, testing is costly. And so, you know, it is a business. And so there are realities of that, which is that we need to grow. And so we're, we have some vendors that we've been working with in the pilots. We have vendors we've been talking to. Uh, we have states and localities that we've been talking to. And so our expectation is that 
throughout the rest of 2023, and kind of these first few months of operation, that uh, we start bringing on a, a few vendors that are our early adopters that are interested in differentiating themselves in the market. Uh, and then we got this interesting wrinkle. It's uh, shortly after we turn the, 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 the page from December to January, we, we very shortly after start presidential preference primaries. Uh, and then it is just wall to wall elections in 2024. And so, uh, you know, we are very tempered in kind of our expectations and growth throughout that. And so we're going to use that as an opportunity to increase our capabilities. And so we have um, currently, uh, and when we first roll out the program in a couple of weeks, uh, we'll have election night reporting systems, voter registration systems, e-poll books as kind of our first three product categories out the gate. Uh, over the course of the next 15 months through the end of 2024, we'll be adding we expect to add at least three more product categories, maybe more, uh, because there is just a lot of different types of technology that go into these extremely complex to administer elections. Uh, and so we want to be able to uh, to address all of them eventually. And so the you know, the future plan for us is to is to be really encompassing of the whole of elections and to be able to execute with excellence in uh in this program so that we can live up to that promise that when you bring something in we can turn it around quickly and give you something meaningful and so that those incentives stay alive that you do come back and uh, when you make a change because you know you're going to get it turned around quickly uh and be able to be able to to take that report and wave it around to election officials and say hey look at us we're world class we're doing we're doing the best at this uh that's why you should procure our product and that that over time increases confidence in elections and with with a very strong evidentiary basis to increase that confidence. And uh, and so that's what we want to see. We want to be part of that increasing confidence throughout elections uh, that we so desperately need. Hey, Tony, Sean, I wonder if I could add just real briefly to that, which is, you know, I think. You know, obviously, I work for CIS, and so like you know, lauding CIS is you know like you know it seems a little self-serving that being said you know i i really want to put out there that you know the cis board has done this inc incredibly great thing which is you know they saw the value of rabbit fee they saw the value for the community and we were running this out at at a cost recovery model right like we're not looking to make money off of this it needs to be self-sustaining over time and we'll we'll ultimately get there but you know like cis believes in this enough to say, hey, we're going to fund this entirely internally, and we're going to make sure that even if we're operating at a loss for, for the first couple of years, we're going to get this thing off the ground. And that has been truly, to me, kind of awe-inspiring of like, hey, they believe not just in the, the product of RabbitD, but they believe in serving this community so deeply that like I think that that's going to bring a lot of value to this. And I think ultimately this is where we want this program to go, which is be broadly used as a framework across the country to be used by states as their own certification and, um, uh, and certification process, but in a way that allows us to like kind of smooth out how these certification processes work across, across the country, because ultimately that means it'll drive costs down for the vendors, which will then drive costs down for the states when they're purchasing these, these, these systems. Yeah, well, well said, Jared. And, and both, both you and Mike, I think, um, you know, summarize neatly, right, the, both the role that CIS can play. And since I've been at CIS for quite a few years now, I'll, I'll shamelessly plug. I think it's, we're one of the few places that could pull this off for the reasons that you described, right? We're in the right place. We have the right mission. 
we've been successful enough, enough as a business to look at these other areas where we could add value and we're not under pressure to, it doesn't have to self-fund within the first year. I think there's a lot of, um, and also several things that Mike said reminded me, you know, again, this is the influence of the board and, and CIS. We tried to honor the principles by which we operate CIS. So transparency, community-based, take the feedback, you know, grow from it, uh, engage everybody in a collaborative, let's get better together uh, role. I think that is really an important part of this. And, you know, especially in this area, as you pointed out, Jared, I mean, the, the level of social issues and distrust floating around, you know, we cannot let this be a place where there's a lack of confidence on behalf of the voter and the American citizen. So, you know, so well done. So we, we uh, are excited to be a part of the experiment here and watch this work out. I really appreciate, again, the innovation around the processes that and, and many of these key elements are not found in traditional systems, right, which have this flavor of pass fail. And, uh, you know, good luck to you next time. You know, that as you, know, as you guys have, have designed around, right, that just leads us to all the wrong incentives and the the wrong way of thinking of this. And the goal is for everyone to get better. So I think that's a, a great way for us to wind up today. Sean, any closing thoughts from uh, from my co-host here on the, on the topic? I've really enjoyed the learning about this. No, absolutely. It's been a learning session for me. And uh, again, we want uh, you guys to come back and give us an update uh, next year as we get into the election cycle. And uh, just, again, just compliments to you both on, on the work uh, and getting this to a point where it's deployable uh, and at the right time, as well, as you mentioned, next year is going to be an important year, as they always are in these election cycles. Mm -hmm. But just great work. <laughs> and uh, again, congratulations. Yep. Thanks, Jared. Thanks, Mike. We appreciate it. And to our listeners out there, uh, thanks for your time and attention. Uh, we never take it for granted. We always appreciate it. And we love to hear from you on the kinds of topics and discussions that would be helpful to you, because that's why we're here. So subscribe to us uh, in the usual way. We look forward to the next episode. And with that, we will move on. And Sean, thanks again. We'll catch you next episode. Thank you for listening to the show today. If you are interested in learning more about how to grow your cybersecurity program, the free tools available to help you on your journey, or to get involved with the CIS volunteer community, visit our website at cisecurity.org. Start secure and stay secure.